long history. Henry Hudson, Voyage 4, Part 8, A Joyful Cry and a Tragical End. Hello everyone and welcome to Long History. Here we give you an eyewitness view of historical events. We've covered documents about Magellan, Columbus, Sir Walter Raleigh and many more. But here we're looking at Henry Hudson's diverse voyages and northern discoveries. And this covers Henry Hudson's famous four voyages to attempt to find a passage to the Far East from England. We're well into the series now, this is episode 24 of 25, so please subscribe to be informed when the remaining episode is released. And all the previous episodes in this series, 25 altogether, will already have been released, so I'm sure they're just a few clicks and taps away. Now we're well into the fourth journey, but Henry Hudson himself has, to all intents and purposes, ended his journey. There was a mutiny two episodes ago in Hudson Bay, when the crew, the mutineers, decided that there wouldn't be enough food to return to England if everyone remained in the ship. And so, according to this version of events, which was written by Abercook Bridget, who by definition, by being a survivor, was somehow on the side of these mutineers, Henry Hudson and the sick men on the ship were all put into a boat and essentially cast adrift. Unfortunately, however, we don't have Henry Hudson's point of view. In this episode, we can see that the mutineers do not have it easy as they try to return to England. As the previous episode ended, they thought they had met some local friendly people who could help them in their quest for food. Here, however, they are attacked. This is Henry Hudson, Voyage 4, Part 8, a joyful cry and a tragical end. Now, when we came, they made signs to their dogs, whereof there were many like mongrels as big as hounds, and pointed to their mountain and to the sun, clapping their hands. Then Henry Green, John Thomas and William Wilson stood hard by the boat head, Michael Purse and Andrew Motor were got up upon the rock a gathering of sorrel. Not one of them had any weapon about him, not so much as a stick, save Henry Green only, who had a piece of a pike in his hand. Nor saw I anything that they had wherewith to hurt us. Henry Green and William Wilson had looking-glasses and Jews' trumps and bells, which they were showing the people. The savages standing round about them, one of them came into the boat's head to me to show me a bottle. I made signs to him to get him ashore, but he made as though he had not understood me, whereupon I stood up and pointed him ashore. In the meantime another stole behind me to the stern of the boat, and when I saw him ashore that was in the head of the boat, I sat down again, but suddenly I saw the leg and foot of a man by me. Wherefore I cast up my head and saw the savage with his knife in his hand who struck at my breast over my head. I cast up my right arm to save my breast. He wounded my arm and struck me into the body under my right pap. He struck me a second blow, which I met with my left hand, and then he struck me into the right thigh and had like to have cut off my little finger of the left hand. Now I had got hold of the string of the knife and had wound it about my left hand, he striving with both his hands to make an end of that he had begun. I found him but weak in the grip, God enabling me, and getting hold of the sleeve of his left arm, so bare him from me. His left side lay bare to me, which, when I saw, I put his sleeve off his left arm into my left hand, 
holding the string of the knife fast in the same hand. And having got my right hand at liberty, I sought for somewhat wherewith to strike him, not remembering my dagger at my side. But looking down I saw it, and therewith struck him into the body and the throat. Whilst I was thus assaulted in the boat, our men were set upon on the shore. John Thomas and William Wilson had their bowels cut, and Michael Purse and Henry Green, being mortally wounded, came tumbling into the boat together. When Andrew Motor saw this medley, he came running down the rocks and leaped into the sea, and so swam to the boat, hanging on the stern thereof, till Michael Purse took him in, who, manfully, made good the head of the boat against the savages that pressed sore upon us. Now Michael Purse had gotten hatchet, wherewith I saw him strike one of them, that he lay sprawling in the sea. Henry Green crieth, Coraggio, and layeth about him with his truncheon. I cried to them to clear the boat, and Andrew Motor cried to be taken in. The savages betook them to their bows and arrows, which they sent amongst us, wherewith Henry Green was slain outright, and Michael Purse received many wounds, and so did the rest. Michael Purse cleareth the boat, and puts it from the shore, and helpeth Andrew Motor in. But in turning of the boat, I received a cruel wound in my back with an arrow. Michael Purse and Andrew Motor rowed the boat away, which, when the savages saw, they ran to their boats, and I feared they would have launched them to have followed us, but they did not, and our ship was in the middle of the channel and could not see us. Now when they had rowed a good way from the shore, Michael Purse fainted and could row no more. Then was Andrew Motor driven to stand in the boat's head and waft to the ship, which at the first saw us not, and when they did, they could not tell what to make of us, but in the end they stood for us, and so took us up. Henry Green was thrown out of the boat into the sea, and the rest were had aboard, the savage being yet alive, yet without sense. But they died all there that day, William Wilson swearing and cursing in most fearful manner. Michael Purse lived two days after and then died. Thus you have heard the tragical end of Henry Green and his mates, whom they called captain, these four being the only lusty men in all the ship. The poor number that was left were to ply our ship to and fro in the mouth of the strait, for there was no place to anchor in near hand. Besides, they were to go in the boat to kill fowl to bring us home, which they did, although with danger to us all. For if the wind blew, there was an high sea, and the eddies of the tides would carry the ship so near the rocks as it feared our master, for so I will now call him. After they had killed some two hundred fowl with great labour on the south cape, we stood to the east, but when we were six or seven leagues from the capes, the wind came up at east. Then we stood back to the capes again, and killed an hundred fowl more. After this, the wind came to the west, so we were driven to go away, and then our master stood, for the most, along by the north shore, 
till he fell into broken ground about the Queen's foreland, and there anchored. From thence we went to God's mercies, and from thence to Rose Islands, which lie in the mouth of our strait, not seeing the land, till we were ready to run our bowsprit against the rocks in a fog. But it cleared a little, and then we might see ourselves enclosed with rocky islands, and could find no ground to anchor in. There our master lay a try all night, and the next day, the fog continuing, they sought for ground to anchor in, and found some in an hundred and odd fathoms of water. The next day we weighed and stood to the east, but before we came here we had put ourselves to hard allowance, as half a fowl a day with the pottage, for yet we had some meal left and nothing else. Then they began to make trial of all whatsoever. We had flayed our fowl, for they will not pull, and Robert Dewart was the first that made use of the skins by burning of the feathers. So they became a great dish of meat, and as for the garbage, it was not thrown away. After we were clear of these islands, which lie out with two points, one to the southeast and the other to the north, making a bay to the site as if there were no way through, we continued our course east-southeast and south and by east, to raise the desolations, from thence to shape our course for Ireland. Thus we continued diverse days, but the wind coming up against us made us to alter our course, and by the means of Robert Dewart, who persuaded the company that they should find great relief in Newfoundland if our countrymen were there, and if they were gone before we came, yet should we find great store of bread and fish left ashore by them. But, how true, I give God thanks we did not try. Yet we stood to the southwest and to the west, almost to fifty-seven degrees, when, by the will of God, the wind came up at south-east. Then the master asked me if he should take the benefit of this wind and shape his course for Ireland. I said it was best to go where we knew corn grew, and not to seek it where it was cast away and not to be found. Towards Ireland now we stood, with prosperous winds for many days together. Then was all our meal spent, and our fowl resty and dry, but, being no remedy, we were content with the salt broth for dinner and the half-fowl for supper. Now went our candles to rack, and Bennet, our cook, made a mess of meat of the bones of the fowl, frying them with candle grease till they were crisp, and, with vinegar put to them, made a good dish of meat. Our vinegar was shared, and to every man a pound of candles delivered for a week, as a great dainty. Now, Robert Dewart, by his reckoning, saith we were within sixty or seventy leagues of Ireland, when we had two hundred thither. And sure our course was so much the longer through our evil steerage, for our men became so weak that they could not stand at the helm, but were fain to sit. Then Robert Dewart died for mere want, and all our men were in despair, and said we were past Ireland, and last fowl were in the steep tub. So our men cared not which end went forward, insomuch as our master was driven to look at their labour as well as his own, 
for some of them would sit and see the foresail or mainsail fly up to the tops, the sheets being either flown or broken, and would not help it themselves, nor call to others for help, which much grieved the master. Now in this extremity it pleased God to give us sight of land, not far from the place our master said he would fall withal, which was the Bay of Galloway, and we fell to the west of the Durseys, and so stood along by the coast to the southwest. In the end there was a joyful cry, A sail! A sail! Towards which they stood. Then they saw more, but to the nearest we stood and called to him. His bark was a foey, and was at anchor at fishing. He came to us and brought us into Beer Haven, where we stayed a few days and dealt with the Irish to supply our wants, but found no relief for in this place there was neither bread, drink, nor money to be had amongst them. Wherefore, they advised us to deal with our countrymen who were there a-fishing, which we did, but found them so cold in kindness, that they would do nothing without present money, whereof we had none in the ship. In the end, we procured one John Weymouth, master of the bark that brought us into this harbour, to furnish us with money, which he did and received our best cable and anchor in pawn for the same. With this money our master, with the help of John Weymouth, bought bread, beer and beef. Now here the story becomes very... tidy. In the previous episode we saw how the mutineers were afraid of what might become of them when they returned to England. In this episode, however, we've seen how the ringleaders of the mutiny in various ways are attacked and killed. Not least Henry Green, killed apparently by some of the local people, and then Robert Jewett who sadly, and rather conveniently it has to be said, died of starvation. It leaves Abercook Pritchett pretty much alone to tell this tale. And we know already how Abercook Pritchett has previously said how he had disagreed with this mutiny and worked hard to make it as peaceful as possible. With Henry Hudson lost for good now, and the main mutineers now dead, there is no one else to contradict this tale, apparently, and so Abercook Pritchard's account is, we could say, suspiciously neat. And he's not shy of portraying himself as a very heroic man, being attacked by the local people and managing to fend them off, despite receiving terrible injuries. The bloodlessness of the rebellion, the convenient death of the mutineers, almost nothing to do with the men who eventually made it back home. You can hardly credit it. The journey is now all but over. In the next episode the crew finally make it back to England, and there's something of a postscript, which involves, as we'll see, another perspective about this voyage by another man who survived. Thank you everyone for making it this far in Henry Hudson's journey. I hope you've enjoyed it. Please don't forget to like it and subscribe and share if you can to help promote long history. This was Henry Hudson, Voyage 4, Part 8, A Joyful Cry and a Tragical End. I'll see you in the next episode, which is the final episode in this series. Thank you and goodbye.